Good morning, City Light. Man, it's been a good week if you're a Cubs fan, right? Uh, 108-year drought. If you're a Cleveland fan or a Husker fan or a Hawkeye fan, not so good. Uh, But this morning, everybody got an extra hour of sleep or an extra hour to prepare uh, to come to church. So it's a full room. Good job, you 11 o'clock faces that showed up an hour early today. Um, we're going to dive back into Exodus today, and what we, the whole time we've been focusing on God's character. What does God show us about who he is? And our big idea today is God disciplines. God disciplines. If you're like me, you hear the word discipline, and it does not stir up happy feelings, Right? If you're like me, um, naturally, you just avoid discipline, if at all possible, right? You can't always get out of it, but you try. Um, When I say discipline, and when I think about that, probably the first thing that comes to mind is the discipline that a parent gives to their children, right? You might be walking through um, the aisles of Walmart, and you hear some snotty-nosed, sassy, crabby little kid shouting at their parents, screaming, right? What goes through your head? Some people's kids, right? Didn't their parents teach them how to shop? My kids wouldn't have done that. If I was their parent, I would have fill in the blank, right? Right? Uh, Those sassy kids need some discipline. But that's not the only kind of discipline, right? Your employer might have a disciplinary program, an employee improvement plan if you don't follow processes or protocols. Uh, But again, that's instruction, that's uh, teaching and turning. Uh, But discipline can be other things too, right? Like if you're in the World Series and you're the batter and you're down in the count, um, but you don't stretch for that outside curve, You might be a disciplined batter. People can be disciplined or a doctor can study a certain aspect of medicine and become a uh, pediatrician or an oncologist, right? They have a certain discipline that they have expertise in. So if discipline can mean all these different things, what then do we mean when we say that God disciplines? That's what I want to look at with you today in his word in Exodus 32. So we'll jump around in that chapter. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you or flip on your app, that's where we'll be today. Here is my outline. Israel gone wild, God gone mad, and God gone dad. Okay, not probably my most mature outline ever, but uh, that's where we're going to go. Maybe I need some discipline. Okay, let's dive into the text. Um, Let me start off by uh, setting the stage, telling the story of Israel gone wild. So Moses and his right-hand man, Joshua, they are on Mount Sinai speaking with God. They went up the mountain, and the people of Israel stayed down the mountain. Um, And while Moses and Joshua are up on the mountain, uh, it gets intense, There are flashes of lightning and clouds. There's smoke and darkness. There are trumpets sounding and the glory of the Lord. This is not uh, your average mountaintop experience. Moses is meeting with God up there. 
And he's up there for 40 days. In the end, he stays up there for 40 whole days. But the people of Israel, they're all down at the bottom of the mountain. And in fact, they're not just at the foot. They decided that was so intense, they were going to stand far off. So they could see the mountain and the mountaintop and what was going on up there, but they weren't up there. So Moses is at the top 40 days. The people are at the bottom, standing, looking off. And they start to wonder at some point in those 40 days, is Moses okay up there? I mean, he's taking a while to get back down. There's lightning. Maybe he got struck. There's uh, smoke. Maybe he breathed in a little too much of it. Um, We wonder if he's okay. And at some point, they assume that he's not. And this is what the Bible says. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they go to Aaron, and in response to their demand for a new god, a god that would go before them, Aaron says, Okay, Give me all your jewelry, all your ornaments, your treasure. And he takes those, he throws them into the fire, melts them down, and he casts a golden calf. And when the golden calf is cast and it comes out, the people of Israel worship it. Let's read one more time from Exodus verses uh, 4 through 6. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand. And fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, you might not see it right away. It might not jump out of the text at you, but this party that they threw got pretty cray-cray. Is that right? Can I use that? I don't know. It got pretty crazy, okay? Uh, This is like spring break at Daytona Beach on steroids. Okay, let me tell you what's happening. This formerly enslaved nation of Israel... They had always had a leader, okay? They'd they'd always been under somebody's control. When they were in Egypt, they had taskmasters who were under Pharaoh. But by God's grace and his power, they got to trade the harsh leadership of Pharaoh for the godly leadership of Moses. And so Moses was leading them. They still had him, and now Moses is up on the mountain. Their leader is separating from them. And before he went up on the mountain, he said, wait for me. Okay, this is what he said to them exactly from Exodus 24. And Moses, he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Aaron's going to be my stand-in for a minute, but wait for us until we return to you. This is not 
um, wait 24 hours, and if I don't come back, come get me. Something's wrong. It's not wait 10 days, and then I'll return. I'll be back in 40 days. Peace out. This is wait for me until I return. And so he goes up on the mountain, and the people down below, they try, and with their bodies, they remain. They wait. But if, if we look at them, their hearts can't. Their hearts can't wait to have a leader with them, among them. They wanted a leader they could see, a leader who would go before them and be with them. And so they demand an idol, and Aaron made one. Now this turning from God, this Um, exchanging leadership again, it was tragic because it demanded a lot from them. Okay, when they made this idol, the first thing that was demanded from them was all of their treasure. Did you see that? The people of Israel, when they were slaves in Egypt, they had nothing. They didn't have treasure. They didn't have gold. But when they traded Pharaoh's leadership for God's leadership. He gave them blessings they'd never known. When they left, God made the people of Egypt give them jewelry and ornaments and treasure, gold and silver and clothing. They were richly blessed. But now when they turned from God, this new leader, this idol, it immediately demands their treasure. And they go from a rich people back to an impoverished people. And can you see that this this picture is not just a financial reality for them. It's a reflection of what's going on in their souls, right? Because God wasn't just blessing them with gold and silver. He was blessing them with himself, He was revealing to them who he was and how good he was. And they were trading all of that for a deaf, mute hunk of metal. They were impoverished. Um, They gave up their treasure to form an idol. Now, that's not the only thing they did. I'm going to try to stay PG in an X-rated situation, okay? They gave their treasure to form an idol, and it says it was a golden calf. Psalm 106 says it was a bull calf, okay? The choice of a bull, uh, of a bull calf, was not random. It's not like Aaron said, okay, who wants to make an idol, we want all the people that say birds vote over here, and all the people that say fish vote over here, and all the people that say a bull come over here, and then majority wins. This was intentional to pick a calf. And you see, in the culture of that day, a bull represented fertility. And worshiping a bull was to be done with the body. Okay, so this is what happens. Aaron forms a golden calf, and then he declares a feast to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Did you catch that? Um, Aaron made an idol and then led the people to worship both the idol and God at the same time. Here's what Exodus says in verse 6. 
and they, the people of Israel, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the party. So they offer sacrifices to the Lord and to the calf. Then they throw a feast to the Lord and then they rise up to play before the calf. Now that word play implies, means something different than cops and robbers, all right? Uh, The meaning is closer to one of those scenes on an HBO show that reminds you you're watching HBO, right? That it's a nation of people all publicly engaging in acts that were meant to be privately enjoyed in the covenant of marriage, okay? PG, X-rated situation, trying to walk the line. You get what I'm saying? They gave their treasure to form an idol, and then they gave their bodies to worship it. This new leader demanded everything they had, and they gave it. This is tragic. So let me pause for a moment and ask, to what do you give your treasure? To ask it another way, what do you treasure? We uh, just started Financial Peace University here uh, a couple weeks ago, and I got to sit in on one of the classes, and the curriculum quotes Zig Ziglar, who said, show me your calendar and your checkbook, and I will tell you what is most important in your life. Show me your calendar and your checkbook. For those of you who don't know what a check is, it's a piece of paper, and you can fill it out and give people money. Show me your calendar and your bank account, and I will tell you what is most important in your life. How would that land on you? If you assess what you invest your time and money in most, think about your calendar and your checkbook. What are the top three, four, five things you invest yourself in? You treasure, you value. Are those things really valuable? I've reflected on this this week. I looked at my calendar. If I'm going to be real with you all, I have spent more time trying to save my floundering fantasy football season and reading the BBC than I have reading my Bible. Okay? We are not complicated creatures We give our treasure to the things we treasure. I spent my time, I invested my time into a pretend football team trying to become a better pretend coach so that my pretend players would score more pretend points in a pretend game than my buddy who's also a pretend coach, right? I want to win a pretend trophy at the end of a pretend season so that I can have pretend confidence in my pretend ability to coach pretend people, right? It is ridiculous when you actually look at this in reality. Maybe reading the BBC has a little more value because I want to be up to date on world events, on what's happening today. There might be a little more value to that activity than fantasy football, but if I'm honest, And I compare where I invest my time in pretend competitions and keeping up on the dramas of today. When I compare that to building a relationship with the eternal creator of the universe, there's just no doubt as to what's more valuable. But my life doesn't reflect that. 
I'm treasuring the wrong things. I'm no different than the people of Israel, right? What about you? If you reflect on your calendar and your checkbook, what are you treasuring? What are you valuing? Um, For the people of Israel, it was pretty clear. They didn't treasure God himself. They treasured a God they could see, a God they could form, a God they could make. And it was tragic. Um, So Moses, he's up on the mountain for a little while, and down at the foot of the mountain, Israel goes wild in sin and idolatry. And so now, I want to head up the mountain to see God's response. How did God respond to what was going on down there? God gone mad. All right, so God and Moses, they're up on the top of the mountain, and um, the smoke isn't there because they're smoking cigars and shooting pool, okay? This is not um, just hanging out, relaxing for a while. There's a purpose to Moses' time up there. Do you remember Chuck's sermon from a couple weeks ago? God was giving the law to his people. And there was a reason for that. It was for Israel's good and God's glory. This is what God said. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God describes his people, his hope for his people. He wants them to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He's saying, if you obey my law, you will be holy like me. I will treasure you. I will live among you. I love you. I want to be with you. Here's what it takes to make that happen. Um, You remember how the people responded? And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is kind of like God getting married to Israel, okay? This is the engagement. It's the verbal commitment. I love you forever. If you'll love me back, I will. Let's get married, right? Um, My engagement story, uh, I took Sarah out to a restaurant And then a little horse-drawn carriage ride. And then we went back into the parking garage. And before we got in the car, that's right, I proposed in a parking garage. Um, Before we got in the car, instead of unlocking the doors, I popped the trunk. And in the trunk was a bouquet of flowers. And that bouquet of flowers had four roses. Um, Two were real and two were silk. And each pair had a red one and a yellow one. And so I hand this bouquet to Sarah, and I said, babe, I I want you to have these flowers. I think this bouquet represents our relationship. To me, it does. Um, Because red represents love, and yellow represents friendship. And just like the real roses, I've enjoyed watching our love and friendship grow and blossom and flower into what it is. And just like the silk roses... I don't want it to ever die. Come on, sappy. She can't say no to that. You got to nail that down, all right? I'm out kicking my coverage on this. She's got to say yes, okay? I don't want it to ever die. 
Are you in this with me? Let's commit. Will you marry me? I love you and I want to do it forever. Do you love me too? Are you in this? Let's do this thing. And that's what God had just done with Israel. If you'll obey me and keep my commands, I will treasure you forever. I'll make you holy like me. You'll be a kingdom of priests and I will show you all of my goodness. Will you love me? And they said, yes. They got engaged. They committed. This was a big deal. And so after I proposed to Sarah and I popped the question, right, you got to make this verbal commitment official. And so imagine I go to the courthouse, right? And I got to get the marriage license, the official documents. And imagine, this is not real, this did not happen, but imagine while I'm there getting the documents, I get a call that says, Sarah was caught with another man and now she's wearing his ring. Can you imagine after all those flowers, after I put all that together, declare my love, and she reciprocates. I go to make it official. I go to get the outline of what that's going to look like. I get a call that she's wearing somebody else's ring. What does that feel like? It's betrayal and abandonment, right? It's cheating and infidelity. You can imagine the pain of what that would do. God was hurt. He was mad. Why would you do this? It's only been 40 days and you've already turned. It hurts so bad. I was giving myself to you. I've shown you my power and my love. I delivered you from slavery and made you free. And you couldn't wait 40 days. You abandoned me and cheated on me. In his anger, in his hurt, here's how God describes his response. Um, This is Exodus 32, verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You can see the contrast in perspective. You can see the difference in how God views their actions and how they view their actions, right? God says that they've turned quickly from the ways that he's commanded. But do you remember what we read Earlier, why did the Israelites demand an idol? Because Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. There's a difference in perspective. When God said, I'll make you a treasured, uh, uh, you, you will be my treasured possession, he didn't mean for the next week or the next 40 days or year or lifetime. God meant you will be my treasured possession for eternity. He was in it for the long haul. 40 days is a drop in the bucket. It's not even the first step of the journey. And yet Israel, they didn't 
if, if we look at the text closely, they didn't even wait 40 days. Moses came down in 40 days, but they had to have time to demand the idol, to get all the jewelry, to melt it down, to fashion the calf, to grave the calf, to recognize this is our new idol, and then declare a feast, and then make the sacrifices. At best, they waited a month. It's more likely it was a couple weeks. They didn't even wait a couple weeks. They said God delayed. God said they turned quickly. There's a difference in perspective. You see another one, right? They say, uh, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Israel looks at the calf and the altar, and they say, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. God, before he gave the Ten Commandments, do you remember what he said? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see the difference? I am the Lord your God. These are your gods. Israel is saying, we're not going to abandon God totally. We're just going to spread his glory out a little bit. This calf is going to get some of it too. There's a difference in perspective. Let me be clear about what's happening. Israel is making a compromise. They're saying, okay, God, you gave us these commandments. We said we would obey your law, but now that we've lived it for a minute, can we compromise a little bit? I know that the first commandment said, you shall have no other gods before me. So um, we're going to feast to you first, and you'll be first there. The altar is going to be before the calf, and when we sacrifice, we'll sacrifice to you first. There won't be any other gods before you, but maybe could we just compromise on the second commandment? You shall not make any carved images. We'll, we'll maybe make one of those, and it'll just be second to you. You see the compromise? God, we know what you've asked of us. This is what we want to obey and feel like we can, but over here, we just can't buy into that. Do you know what that feels like? You ever read God's word and say, ah, I don't know if I can do that. You ever compromise? Compromise is a big deal to God. Uh, just like I would never want to share my wife with another man, God does not want to share his glory. He does not want to share his people with any other God, any lesser God. God had shown his people. He had led his people out of slavery so that the whole world would know him, so that the whole world would know his power and his glory and his love and his mercy and his matchlessness and his holiness and his goodness. And this golden calf had none of that. And so when Israel says, God, we just, these are the gods that brought us out. We just want you to share a little bit of it because we can see this. It hurts. God is mad. And he looks at them and he says, you know what? If you want to give your treasure to a golden calf, if you want to worship and follow a hunk of metal that can't see or hear or speak, and you want to abandon me, you're no different than the Egyptians. And you deserve the same fate as them. 
And in his hurt and in his anger, he declared to Moses um, this. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God was ready to destroy Israel, to consume them. He was mad. But I want to point out that just because he was mad doesn't mean he was bad. Okay? In fact, the opposite is true, and we're going to see it. Even though God was mad, he was still good. And we see it first in his interaction with Moses. Okay? Moses, God's not on the mountain alone. All these things that he's saying, he's speaking to Moses. And so Moses hears God's assessment of what's happening down below. He hears God's intent to destroy the people. And Moses steps up and he speaks. And he says, oh God, if you kill these people, then your glory is at stake. Because the Egyptians, all the other people who've seen these and heard of these great acts that you've done, they're going to think that you brought Israel out here just to kill them. They're not going to see your goodness. They're going to think you had evil intentions. But you're not evil, God. You're good. Remember the promises that you made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that their descendants would inherit a land and they would be a people and you would make them a great nation. You are keeping that promise, God. You are good for your glory. Relent from this disaster. And even in his anger, our good father relented. And he said, Moses, Because of my promises, for my name's sake, I will relent. And God did not destroy his people. In that moment, though Israel had gone wild in sin and it made God very angry, God went from mad to dad. Okay? God is a good father. Um, He's going to tell these people that they're treasuring the wrong things. As we finish here today, I want you to see that a good father disciplines his kids. A good father doesn't look out at his kids when they're doing something that's harmful to them and sit back and let it happen. A good dad steps in and intervenes. He teaches, he instructs, he disciplines. A good dad is involved and God's going to get involved. Once he turns and relents from the disaster that he had first imagined, he sends Moses down the mountain to discipline his children. Before we go there, I want to show you what the book of Hebrews says about God's discipline. It says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. He had promised to make Israel a holy nation. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to treasure his holiness. And so he uses discipline for their good so that they can share it. Okay, here's what happens. 
Moses goes down the mountain, and God's discipline happens in three stages. We're going to look at them one by one. First, Moses breaks stuff, okay? He comes down the mountain, and he's carrying some stone tablets, the tablets that God had written the law on. And he walks down the mountain, and it, when he, the people come into view, he sees them playing before the calf, and he gets angry, and the first thing he does is take those stone tablets and throw them on the ground, and they shatter, and they break. And he does that to show the Israelites, you have just broken the covenant that you made with God. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just break the tablets. He goes down, and he gets that golden calf, and he breaks it, and he breaks it right. He grinds it down to dust. And then he does something kind of weird. You ever read the Bible and you think, man, that's kind of weird. Why would you do that? He grinds it up into dust. He throws it into the water and then makes the people drink it. Okay? Odd. Why would he do that? The people drank the golden calf and it was consumed. The God that they said had led them out of Egypt in power was powerless to be consumed even by them. The discipline that God, did, that God gives is always accompanied with grace. The discipline was drinking the gold dust water. But the grace was seeing the idol consumed, turned into literally human waste that stinks. God is showing them, there is no God like me. Every idol that you create will one day rot and decay and be consumed. I am the only eternal I am. I am unconsumable. Treasure me. I'm a greater treasure than any of these idols that you can create. God's discipline is filled with grace. In the first act, Moses breaks stuff. Okay? In the second act, of discipline, people die. About 3,000 people die. Here's the story. After everybody drinks the gold water, Moses calls out to the nation of Israel and said, whoever is on God's side, come to me. Translation, if you still have your clothes on and didn't bow the knee to the idol, come here. And one tribe comes, the Levites. And they circle up, and Moses says, grab your swords and go kill the offenders. And they do it. And 3,000 people die that day. Now, this is a difficult and uncomfortable passage. We might ask the question, what kind of God disciplines with death? Is that a good God? Um, I would say, God, even this discipline was filled with grace. Uh, we want the problem of sin to end with happy endings and hearts and bows. But sin doesn't end that way. Sin is deadly serious. Sin doesn't end with a handshake and a, it's okay, don't worry about it. Sin ends with 3,000 rotting corpses strewn throughout the tent nation of Israel. 
It's deadly serious. The discipline here is seeing your brothers and family, your nation, die in their sin. But grace is seeing the end of the path that you're starting down. In Romans, we read, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin only leads to death. It only does. All sin is rebellion against God. All forms of sin in all of its permutations is only rejection of God. And rejection of God leads to death. We only find life in him. This discipline is for the people's good that they would know sin leads to death. Do you believe that? Do you take sin seriously? Because God does. We treasure God because he is the only life-giving God. All other idols, worshiping them only leads to death. God is a better treasure. Um, so Moses breaks stuff, people die. The third act of discipline gets even stranger yet. It's a plague, okay? Um, rem- remember how Israel played before the calf? It's hard to play when you've got the plague, okay? Um, let you catch up to that for a second. Tell you a story. I was discipling a guy one time, um, and we've been talking for a while. He, he had a serious girlfriend. And she was on assignment with work overseas to kind of a destination spot. And he was going to go visit her for two weeks. And we'd been doing some discipleship. And uh, as part of that, he was feeling convicted about their physical relationship. And uh, so he said, Eric, I'm just nervous. I'm nervous that I'm going to go over there. And when I get there, I'm going to fall into temptation again. And I don't want to do that. And so we prayed. I prayed for him. He prayed. And we prayed that God would keep him from temptation. And you know what happened? He got over to that location. And the very first day he got there, they both got a stomach bug that kept him close to the bathroom. Okay? <laughs> they got to enjoy the food. They got to hang out and talk. He said it really wasn't that awful. We just couldn't be that far away. And... It kept us from playing, right? This is not the kind of answer to prayer that he wanted or expected, but God delivered, okay? The discipline for Israel was a plague on the flesh, but the grace was a barrier to engaging in the passions of the flesh. Do you see that? God's discipline may not be pleasant in the moment, but it is good in the end. God says, treasure me in your hearts, in your flesh, more than you treasure all of the other things that this world has to offer. See, like, God disciplines us for our good so that we can share in his holiness. A good dad steps in to teach and instruct his children. Listen, for you adults out there, you may look back on your childhood and think, my parents were disciplinarians. You may be a parent now and say, it is hard to discipline my kids. 
My own son yesterday wanted to go over to his friend's house. I was watching him by myself, and I said, I can't watch all the other three kids and know how you're doing over there. You got to stay. And he went, fine. And I said, Asher, wait. Come here. I love you. I know this feels like I don't want what's good for you. But if anything were to happen to you, I couldn't take care of you. I am your dad, and I love you. I want what's best for you. This is for your good, even when you don't know it. And I think there are people maybe sitting here today that are in a season of life that's hard. And you look at God, and you say, are you good? God, are you good? This is hard. Why isn't this ending? God, would you just stop this? I want to be happy. I want things to go well, and I want to challenge you now. If you're in that situation and you look at God and question his goodness, could it be that God is a good father who's disciplining you so that you might share in his holiness? Here's the good news. I'm going to end with this. The people of Israel were disciplined and not destroyed. And because they weren't destroyed, they got to enter the promised land. They got to get there. God's discipline was for their good. The same thing is going on today. God is creating a new disciplined but not destroyed people. And he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. I want to get there. And I want you to get there. And so as a people, can we just rejoice that we have a good father who disciplines us for our good so that we can share in his holiness. Is God's discipline good news for you today? It's good news for me.